Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Hey, everyone. Welcome to On The Market. James Daynard. What's going on, man? Good to have you here. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Just just landed on a red eye in Naples, Florida. So I'm in, I'm in a random random hotel room right now. Why are you in Naples, Florida? It's for a sales retreat. Oh. We're having a bunch of guys meet at one of our partner's houses. So it's it's pretty cool. But I literally landed, got in the Uber, and pulled over to a random hotel to hop in for the podcast. Oh, my God. That's not even where you're staying? No, this is halfway, Mark. You just rented a room to record the podcast? <laughs> got to get that good Wi-Fi. Wow. Oh, my God. Wow. You stay at nicer hotels than me. My Wi-Fi is always terrible there. Uh, but that is dedication. We we greatly appreciate that. Well, today we have a great show. Have you? Let me ask you. Have you heard the term doom loop recently? <laughs> it is on repeat. It is yes. it is the term of the the month at least. I know that much. Well, if you haven't heard to our audience, doom loop is the scenario that a lot of journalists and analysts are talking about, where commercial real estate. Defaults start, banks stop lending, credit tightens, which puts more downward pressure on prices, more people default, and it becomes this sort of negative downward spiral. And this has happened in the past. This is not like fiction or theory. Like this, this has happened. And a lot of analysts are thinking that it could happen in the US with commercial real estate. So, Today, we have brought on an incredible guest. It is Richard Barkham, who is the Global Chief Economist and Head of Global Research 
for CBRE, which if you're not familiar, one of the very biggest commercial real estate firms in the entire country. He maintains a massive team of analysts and economists, and we have an incredible conversation with him about the doom loop, about what's going on in the international property market and how it could impact the U.S. And so I think we're going to hear some really fascinating stuff in this conversation. James, do you have any uh, questions you're particularly interested in asking Richard? Yeah, where are the deals going to be? We haven't we haven't seen the huge deals <laughs> Give yet. Me those deals. <laughs> so where are they going? Let's go find them. Yeah, all these economists they they talk a lot about theory. They're wonderful guests and they are super helpful. But I don't think they're going to be showing you any properties that are going to be no, good deals for you. They'll drop you those little gold <laughs> nugget hints that you should start looking. Yeah, they inform your strategy. Yeah. yeah, take notes and go dig on all the sectors he's going to talk about. Before we get into our conversation with Richard, I just wanted to call out that you're going to hear two different terms that you may not know. One is cap rates. We, we do talk about that a decent amount on the show, but cap rates are one way that commercial real estate is often valued. And it's basically just a measurement of market sentiment and how much investors are willing to pay for a particular stream of income or a particular asset class. The higher the cap rate, the less expensive the building is. So buyers usually like high cap rates. The lower the cap rate, the more expensive the building is. So sellers typically like that. So just keep that in mind as we talk about, as we go through this interview. The other thing we're going to talk about is IRR. If you've never heard of it, it stands for internal rate of return. And it's basically just a metric that Real estate investors really of all types use, but it's used particularly often in commercial real estate. And it is a preferred metric for commercial investors because it is a very sophisticated one. Like I can't even, you know, I've written about it in my book, but I can't even tell you that the formula off the top of my head. Basically what IRR does in the most simplistic sense is allows you to factor in all the different streams of income that you get from a property. So a lot of people look at cash flow and cash on cash return, or they look at their equity growth and look at equity multiple. What IRR does is it looks at the different cash flow that you're getting, the different equity that you're building, the timing of that income, and gives you one solid number to understand your overall return. Uh, and it is a great thing to learn if you're a real estate investor. We talk about it in Real Estate by the Numbers. Just know that uh, Richard and James and I are going to talk about IRR, and that's what it means. All right, James, with no further ado, let's bring on Richard Barkham, the Global Chief Economist for CBRE. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Richard Barkham, welcome to On The Market. Thank you for joining us. Very glad to be here. Let's start by having you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your position at CBRE. So I'm Global Chief Economist at CBRE, and CBRE is the world's biggest property services company. Um, I've occupied this role for eight years. Um, prior to that, I was with a, a very well-known English um, company called Grosvenor. And prior to that, for my sins, I was a university professor. 
Excellent. And can you tell us a little bit about what you and I presume your team as well work on at CBRE in terms of economic forecasting and analysis? Yeah, so my team is 600 people around the world, um, and we are primarily engaged in collecting and, and managing data about real estate markets. You know, just keeping connected with global real estate markets is, is what we do. And we like to be first in the market with commentary on recent trends in real estate. And we like to have the best big ideas about the forces that are driving real estate. Oh, good. Well, we want to hear about your big ideas. Let's start, though, with just a general outlook. You know, everyone has a different opinion these days about where the U.S. economy is heading. What's yours? The U.S. economy has been surprisingly resilient, um, but we still expect a recession to come. Um, we've got it penciled in for Q4 of 2023 and Q1 of 2024. Um, but given the resilience in the economy, we can't be exactly certain with that. I, I could see us um, pushing that out a little bit. But the sharpest rise in interest rates in 40 years eventually will bear down on the economy. It's already bearing down on certain sectors. Real estate's one of them. You know, global conditions are worsening as well, which points us more in the direction of uh, a recession. And what are some of those global conditions that you're referencing that you think will have the biggest impact on the U.S. economy? Well, I think first and foremost, um, you know, we'd expected China, when it bust out of, you know, that COVID lockdown to take off into really rapid growth. And it did for a quarter. Um, but in Q2, the Chinese economy has slowed up quite a lot. Um, and it's partly because people spent all of their money in Q1 and, and of of have restrained themselves a little bit in Q2. But I think there are more fundamental issues in China to do with uh, the weakness of the housing market, particularly in tier two, tier three cities. And also the Chinese economy is running into its, its normal channel of growth is exports, but Western markets are very sluggish. Mm. So I think the Chinese economy has got problems there. Why does that affect the US? It's because behind the scenes over the last 20 years or so, China's been an increasingly important driver of global demand. Um, and although the, the United States is a fairly isolated and resilient economy, it can't completely uh, um, get away with uh, weakening global demand. And that, that's the big thing about China. But I also notice Europe has weakened as well. Um, Germany, France, Italy all had negative GDP growth in Q2. So the bigger uh, developed economies are beginning to feel a pinch as well. Glad you kind of brought that up because, you know, I've been actually been reading up on the Chinese economy quite a bit and how much has been cooling down and, and, and possibly heading towards stagflation. That's a huge deal because it's a massive economy that's been emerging. What is that going to do to the our possible recession locally? And how is that going to affect, you know, a concern of mine is that could actually send the world in somewhat of a spin, which could keep rates a little bit higher. Do you think that that's going to affect rates going forward for the next 12 months with the impact of any kind of like global slowdown as well? No, I think it's the reverse in the case of China. I think China is going to send a deflationary uh, impulse, a slowdown in China, um, because China is a very heavy user of resources um, and commodities in the world economy. If the Chinese economy slows up, then that puts downward pressure on commodities. Um, and that, that helps to reduce inflation in the developed world. Um, and I also think... Um, China drives a lot of the emerging markets. Uh, uh, you know, China and the emerging markets together, maybe 35% of the global economy. 
U.S. companies, um, you know, export to those markets. So I think through that, there's a there's a, a slowdown impulse sent to the United States economy and the other developed markets. But I don't think it's inflationary. I think it's deflationary. So one question I keep asking uh, some of our guests is for, for those who believe a recession is in the future, what is going to change between now, which you described as surprise, you know, as resilient um, to one that actually dips into recession? What do you think some of the drivers are going to be that tip the scales? Um, I think at some point, corporates will want to uh, reduce their headcount. Um, if demand slows up, corporates will want to um, let labor go. Uh, and I think what we'll f start to see is uh, unemployment ticking up. Um, you know, we've got incredibly low unemployment. Um, it, it's been at 3.5. The last number was 3.8. Um, but I think over the course of a recession, um, that could easily get up to 4, 4.5. Um, and uh, indeed, it was much higher than that in the great financial crisis. So um, with fewer jobs, uh, harder to get a job, uh, longer uh, between jobs. And, you know, that feeds through into consumer sentiment. And I think then that triggers your households being much more cautious uh, about what they spend. Um, and we're beginning to see some element of that because at the moment, the U.S. economy is continuing to add jobs. Um, you know, the new jobs are, is offsetting the, the, the kind of slowdown in spending from, from people who are already employed. So, Richard, when do you think, you know, it, the jobs report is starting to turn? I think this last month was indicating that, you know, um, it, it's starting to cool. It's, it's, it's definitely starting to cool down. And, you know, as far as what I understand is a lot of the interest rates that are being hiked up as high, it's to a battle inflation, but also to cool down the labor market. Do you think until we see more unemployment or do you, do you believe that the Fed is going to continue to keep raising rates to kind of try to battle the labor market? Or is it something that, you know, they can kind of make it more of a soft landing to where we're not going to have to see a ton of unemployment and to get rates under control? Because, you know, right now, cost of money is excessively high. I know I'm paying it in all my daily activities uh, in real real estate. And you know, I think we're all waiting for them to kind of come back down and we're seeing inflation starting to tick down. The job market starting to slow down. But do we really need to see a break in the labor market for that to start changing the other way? I think the Fed would love to slow the economy up without actually impacting the labor market. So I don't think the Fed is attacking the labor market. But at the moment, um, you know, today's data shows that the employment cost index was revised up. So the cost of labor is still um, you know, higher than is ideal. And, and one simple way of, of uh, expressing that is um, the, the rate of growth of hourly wages in the U.S. economy right now is 4.4%. Um, you know, the Fed would like to see that at about 3.5% because, and this is a technical economics answer, 3.5% um, wage growth plus 1.5% productivity growth gives you 2% growth in unit labor costs. And that's that's the rate that is consistent with 2% inflation. So we're above the rate that 4.4% is above the rate that's consistent with 2% inflation. Um, and indeed, actually, productivity is flatlining. So that impulse from the labor market. Now, there's two ways that that can ease. One, we can get more workers back into the labor force. So labor force participation can rise. And that has been happening. 
but the other way that it can happen um, is through taking demand out of the labor market and and demand for jobs uh, the jobs created is going down but i think there are still something like 8 million vacancies in the us economy so it's still a it's you know for all that it's slowing up it's still a robust labor market and i don't think the fed wants to to cause unemployment but it's going to keep interest rates high until those uh, wage that wage growth eases back substantially um, and that may then trigger um, uh, a rise in unemployment yeah, I'm hoping it cools down. We're still trying to hire right now, and it is impossible to get people. Like in, in the Pacific Northwest, it is just terrible. Like every time we put a job ad up, it takes us three to four months to fill it rather than 30 days like it used to be. Well, I think you're not the only business feeling that, really. And um, there was a sense, I think, that manufacturing industry was was coming, was slowing up. But, you know, if you look at surveys of manufacturing industry, um you know, the biggest issue is not cost of finance in manufacturing. It's access to skilled labor. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a real thing. Uh, and, um, you know, one of, that, one of the drivers of that, of course, is demographic. Um, you know, you've got a lot of boomers leaving the labor market. On top of all of the cyclical stimulus and all of the, um, you know, the, the macroeconomic cycle, you've got demographics overlaying that. And, um, you know, you've got boomers leaving the labor market and some forecasts actually say the U.S. labor market is going to shrink over the next five years. Um, so that needs to be replenished, I think, with, um, I would say, legal migration um, of skilled people. Um, and that is picking up. Uh, but it is, um, you know, as you, as you suggest, labor market conditions uh, have cooled, but they are still tight. And, you know, getting back to the original question that is of concern to the fed absolutely it is all right richard well we've we've peppered you a lot about macroeconomics but we would love to hear given your experience at cbre your take on the commercial real estate market you know it seems every single day we we hear read a headline about some doom and gloom scenario and would love to hear if you feel the same way or what is your thought on the commercial market. Okay, well, let me just put that in context for folks to uh, uh, just a big picture just before I start. Um, commercial real estate in the United States is worth about 10 trillion. It's a little bit more than that. Um, single family homes or, or residential real estate is worth 45 trillion. So the residential real estate market is much, much bigger. And um, that is in good health, actually. Prices are going up, um, and even construction is looking up. And, uh, you know, that's really odd, given that we've got mortgage rates at 7.5%. Um, and the, the, I think, you know, what accounts for that is post-great financial crisis, we've just failed to build enough homes in the United States. There's a deficit of 3 to 4 million homes. Um, so the demand and supply balance in the residential market is, you know, reasonably healthy. Now, we can come on to uh, how that affects the apartment market. But let's just, you know, people talk about doom and gloom. Um, let's just get commercial real estate in context. And the, the real recessionary sector uh, in uh, commercial real estate is the office sector. And of that 10 trillion, offices are maybe 25% of that. So, again, you know, um, it's a big sector. It's very visible. It's in our face. Uh, and you know, vacancy in the uh, office sector is 19%, up from 12% a couple of years ago. 
uh, which is, you know, a, a rate of vacancy we haven't seen since the savings and loan crisis in the in the early 1980s. Um, and companies are really cutting back on the amount of space that they're going to use uh, because of remote working. Um, uh, and also we've got a delivery of new real estate into the market from the previous construction wave. Um, so fundamentals in office, very weak right now. Now, I, I would just... This is a nuance. I'm going to talk about real estate stuff. Please. Um, you know, uh, it's not true that the market in offices is completely dead. Um, I looked at the number of transactions that CBRE is doing um, in 2023, and it is only 5% down on the number of transactions that we did in nine, 2019. But when companies are taking space, which is 30% less than they took in 2019. So the market is active, just companies are taking lesser amounts of space, and they're also preferring the newer build. Um, and, you know, the real fight, flight to quality and experience, I think. Market not dead, but the unoccupied stock has increased from 12% to 18%. Looking across the rest of real estate, um, by which I mean apartments, by which I mean the retail sector, by which I mean industrial, and, you know, increasingly alternatives such as data centers, um, uh, medical office, uh, life sciences. I would say the fundamentals there are actually re reasonably robust. It's, you know, it's really surprising when you look across it. You know, vacancy rates are notching up. Demand is not quite what it was. Uh, but I would say um, fundamentals in all of those sectors are, are reasonably okay, by which I mean to say that, you know, people are active in the market taking space uh, and there's not a big surge in vacancy rates um, and unoccupied space. Richard, have you seen much price you know, compression? We've seen it across some of the residential space, but now we've seen the median home price creep back up. Have you seen much compression with interest rates rising and the demand, like you were just saying, tenants are occupying less space? Have you seen much compression in all those segments like industrial, office, retail, and pricing like what adjustments have you seen? Because I have seen pricing start to tick down in those sectors, uh, you know, not as many transactions going on. But, you know, what kind of price adjustments have we seen year over year um, based, you know, on the demand being smaller? Yeah, I mean, um, that's a that's a complex story. So this will be a bit of a long answer. But let's let's kick off with apartments. If you're a, a user of apartments, the price you pay is the rent, obviously. In that period, 2000. And 20 to 2022, when people really, you know, bust out of COVID, we saw uh, apartment rents going up at 24% on average across the states. It, 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 you know, it's terrible. I would say apartment rental growth um, has, has dropped to about 2%. So prices are still creeping up, but it's below inflation. And there are certain markets, I think, where there's, there's quite a lot of new apartments being built, where you've actually seen some price declines. But on average, I, I think prices across America in apartments are still creeping up slowly. Hmm. Um, in the case of retail, um, that's another strange story. Um, we haven't built any retail space for 15 years or so. Um, and the retail sector, you know, has gone through COVID. Uh, it's kind of, you know, cleaned up its balance sheets. It's um, reinvented itself as a kind of omni-channel operator, very slick omni-channel. And I think, you know, part of the fact, you know, the consumer exuberance has sent people into retail centers. So 
actually in the retail sector, um, our brokers tell us there's not enough grade A space. You, you know, uh, companies are being held back from expanding um, because there's not enough good space. We haven't built enough. So rent's still creeping up in retail, uh, actually. Um, that's not to say there isn't a problem with grade B and grade C malls. I think everybody would see that in their daily lives. But even some of those are kind of reinventing themselves as kind of community hubs and antique mall destinations. Um, and, uh, uh, you, you know, uh, they're finding other uses, even flex offices going into some B and C malls. Um, so that's apartment, that's retail, um, industrial. You know, that's got the tailwind of, of the digital economy of um, e-commerce um, still well and truly behind it. And, you know, we're going to see uh, leasing in industrial down 30% this year, you know, from a billion square feet last year to maybe 750,000 square, 750 million square feet. But it's still going to be the third strongest year on record. So uh, rents, you know, are, are, are moving up. Uh, and more than a little in industrial, uh, you know, uh, maybe around, you know, somewhere between 9 and 12%. Um, so that's a very hot market. Um, and, of course, you know, other things like data centers. Uh, you know, there are folks here in Dallas where I'm based, um, you know, leasing space six years out. There's really huge demand for uh, data centers around cloud computing, um, artificial intelligence. It's an incredibly hot sector. So I'll pause there. There are other sectors where I could talk about, but I think the fundamentals in real estate, apart from offices, are surprisingly strong, which is not to say that um, investors are active. You, mm -hmm. you know, if you make a distinction between people who use the real estate for what it's built for and they pay rent and the people who own real estate, which are pension funds, like life insurance companies, uh, you know, university trusts, and, and other private capital. Um, you know, it's very quiet on the investment front right now. Um, and, and prices are dropping. The actual mm -hmm. value, you know, the actual price that you would pay for uh, real estate as an asset, you know, will be down anywhere between 15 and 20% on where it was two years ago. So just... Just in summary, yeah. So demand among tenants, whether they're apartment tenant, retail tenant, seems to be holding up relatively well, but demand among investors is slipping. That is sort of what we've been seeing. And, and the data I've been looking at shows that cap rates are moving up. Is that what you're seeing? And if so, you know, outside of office, I think we all understand office is sort of being the biggest hit. But our audience is particularly interested in multifamily apartment type of audience. So I'm just curious how cap rates are performing in that specific sector of commercial real estate. Well, I think it's like all of the other sectors. You know, cap rates would be out approximately 125 basis points to 150 basis points, depending on the, the type of asset and the location from somewhere, you know, around three and a half percent out to four or five percent. Um, you know, depending on the location and, and maybe higher than that. Um, you know, it depends what the, the, the starting point is. You know, there are a range of, of cap rates reflecting um, the different gradings and the different locations. But I would say as a general, prices are out 150 basis points. And that is the equivalent of, of, of approximately a 20% drop in prices. And do you think that's going to continue? 
Yes, I do, actually. Um, I see it not forever. No, I just love someone who gives a direct answer. So (laughs) usually when we ask something like that, they're like, well, you know, because it is complex. Don't don't get me wrong. There are many caveats, but I do always appreciate a very clear answer like that. Yeah, I think think there could be further loss of value um, in, but, you you know, and it, it, it won't reverse itself until investors begin to see a clear glide path for interest rates. And, I, you know, we began to see, I think, maybe two months ago, just a little bit of a sense where people were, you know, look, looking at what I saw, which was actually offices, you know, that's got a problem, but fundamentals in real estate, actually not too bad. Um, we seem to be getting on top of inflation. Let's start thinking about it. and And those forward rates of return, um, you know, take a 5% cap rate, add 2% rental growth, and we've got, you know, notionally a 7% cap rate, uh, uh, forward IRR. Um, and, you know, that equates to debt costs, you know, somewhere between 65 and 7.5%. People began to think, you know, maybe we'll start looking at deals again. But I think the spike in the 10-year treasury when it went from, you know, 4.2 to 4.4, uh, you know, in the last two weeks, again, brought that uncertainty uh, about the glide path for interest rates uh, front of mind. So people just put their pens down again and thought, well, we're just going to wait and see what happens. And every bit of news that's, you know, we're in this world, I think, that good news is bad news. Um, Whereas, you know, between 2009 and 2020 for real estate, bad news was good news because it kept interest rates down. Mm-hmm. Now we're in the, the opposite world. It's the same world, but it's opposite. But good news is bad news because uh, it, it kind of increases the f- people's worries about interest rates higher for longer. So, Richard, you're saying we could see some more buys over the next 12 months because I, I feel like the multifamily market has dropped a little bit, but the sellers are still hanging in there and there's not a lot of transactions going on because you know, the cap rates just aren't, they're not attractive enough for us to look at them because I've seen the same thing. We were seeing cap rates like three and a half, maybe low fours. And now they're up to like five and a half. And, you know, it it doesn't, it's not very attractive with the debt out there right now. No, no. I mean, you know, I think if people had more confidence, you wouldn't just look at the, the, you know, to get technical, you wouldn't just look at the cap rate. You'd have to look at the the IRR, which takes into account the rental appreciation that you would get. Right. And I think the IRRs, you know, even if you assume 2% um, rental growth, 2.5%, that gives you a an IRR that is getting in the ballpark. Um, but I think when confidence evaporates, uh, people are not IRR investors. You know, if IRR investors involve making assumptions about rent in the future, and people don't want to do that. And they just, as you say, there's no positive leverage right now. Um, and people are unwilling to accept le- negative le- leverage um, uh, uh, in, in the marketplace. But it won't take much to tip that equation, I don't think. You know, we'll have to get, you know, just you know, get, get a bit more obvious direction on where inflation is going, a bit more obvious guidance that we've reached the peak of the Fed funds cycle. And the Fed have been, you know, very equivocal about that. Uh, then I think things will tip because on the leasing side, uh, leasing kind of disappeared, you know, in Q2 of, of 2022. Just, you know, when interest rates started going up, people dropped out of the market. Well, leasing's back. 
Q2 of this year, leasing came back. And we've got quite a high level of new construction, um, maybe 90,000 units per quarter. Um, but, you know, the market is absorbing 60 to 70,000 units per quarter, at least based on Q2 evidence and Q3 trajectory. So, you know, demand has come back up. Um, vacancy is probably increasing slightly. But, you know, with, with demand coming back, it won't take too much in terms of that, you know, expectations for people to say, you know, there are some bargains to be had here. I would say just on your point about sellers, you know, holding out, if the Fed hadn't intervened and provided liquidity to the banking sector, which has allowed the banking sector to be able to transit through a period of, of loans, you know, they might still be paying the interest, but they're kind of below water in terms of value. Um, you know, we might have had a different situation. The Fed has been very active um, in providing liquidity to the banking sector. And of course, I think that's kept pressure off the owners. And therefore, you know, you've got this, this standoff between buyers and sellers or owners and potential buyers. Richard, I do want to follow up on, on the banking sector and what's going on there. Just yesterday, I was reading an article in the Wall Street Journal where they were positing about a quote-unquote doom loop in commercial real estate. And the basic premise is that their you know, valuations are already down. It's put some loans under or some properties underwater. And now people are starting to default on those loans. Bank credit is tightening up, which means people can't refinance or they can't purchase, which puts further downward pressure on valuations. And it sort of creates the spiral that creates sustained downward pressure on prices in the commercial real estate space. I'm curious if you think there is a risk of this doom loop or whatever you want to call it, if there, there's more risk in bank failures and the lack of liquidity impacting the commercial market. I mean, what I'm going to tell you is rather a complex argument, which is somewhere in between there's no problem and there's a doom loop. Um, <laughs> and I think, okay. <laughs> you know, with, with great respect, you know, journalists, the journalistic maxim is to simplify and exaggerate. Right. Um, and I think, you know, to a certain extent with real estate, that's what's going on. And I'm not saying that the, there isn't an issue with loan impairment. Um, but I think what we're hearing and what we're seeing is, um, you know, banks have got ample access to liquidity. They're not suffering. And because of that, they're not suffering deposit flight. So where they are making losses uh, or they have to write down loans, they're able to bring that to their P&L account on a, on a relatively orderly basis. Um, and, you know, there is no doubt that the cost and availability of credit for new financing is much tighter. It's incredibly tight. But I don't think the banks want to um, end up with real estate on their books. I mean, they've been through this before. You know, they don't want to put people into default, and then they've got the, the real estate that they've either got to manage or they've got to sell it at some discount to somebody who holds it for two years and then makes a profit two years down the line. They've been through that before, um, and they don't want to go through that again. So I think what we're seeing is that where possible, banks are extending and uh, I wouldn't I'd go as far as to say extending and pretending, uh, but, you know, um, there are lots of creative ways in which banks can work with uh, borrowers in order to 
get through the period of acute stress. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't going to be losses. Our own research tells us probably, you know, 60, 60 billion of um, loans uh, are, are likely to default. Um, you, you know, that's, but that's a, a, you know, there's 4.5 billion of loans to commercial real estate. That's 60 billion. Um, maybe it's 1.5% of total bank assets. So it's going to be painful, uh, but it is not going to bring down the banking sector. Therefore, the doom loop, you know, the, it's not good and making losses is never good. Uh, but I don't think it's quite as an aggressive doom loop as, as we have seen in previous real estate crises. You know, we've seen, you know, doom loops still exist in reality. Um, you know, they did in the savings and loans crisis. They did in the great financial crisis. Uh, but at the moment, um, for a variety of reasons, I, I don't think we're there yet. There's definitely a lot of articles with that word doom loop going on. I, I, I'm, it's like the new in term I'm seeing on every article where it's like doom loop, doom loop. That's all I'm hearing. Just wait, James. The, this, the episode is now going to be called doom loop. And we're going to probably have our best performing <laughs> episode of all time if we call it the doom loop. Can't we talk about virtuous circles rather than doom loop? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No one wants to hear about virtuous circles. They want to hear about doom loops. <laughs> Unfortunately, I would love virtuous circles. But if there is a doom loop coming, you know, Richard, what sectors, because it, it sounds like you, you feel confident in some commercial sectors going forward. What sectors are you, or do you feel are the, the most investors should be wary of right now? Like if you're looking at buying that next deal in the next 12 months, what sectors are you like, hey, I would, I would cool down on that or be, be wary of? Well, it's very tempting to say offices, um, you know, because offices, as I say, we've got that, that jump in um, vacancy from 12% to 19%. We've got no certainty about um, the return to work in U.S. office. We think the return to work will gather pace, but just over a longer period. But there is no certainty about that right now. Um, on the other hand, um, as a, you know, a professional in real estate of, of 40 years or so, um, you get the best bargains in the most bombed out markets. So, uh, you know, uh, amidst all of that repricing, there are going to be some very good opportunities in the office sector. Um, and if you really want to be contrarian, you kind of run in the opposite direction. You know, all those people running one way saying doom loop, doom loop, you, you kind of, work out where they're coming from and move in the opposite direction. Um, I think also retail, you know, has got uh, quite a lot going for it right now. And, you know, we were seeing quite a lot of private capital. And it's not like office. You know, the asset sizes can be smaller. It is possible for, for smaller investors to get involved in retail. And we are seeing a shortage of, of space. And we're seeing some very, very interesting trends in, in uh, retail. You know, the, the sexy sectors, if I want to put it in those terms, or the sectors that we're most confident on, I think, because of the tailwinds, are the industrial sector and the multifamily sector. Um, you know, if you want to invest in longer term rental growth. Um, but they, you know, once the market starts to moving, moving, uh, that's where the prices will, will rise quickest. So if you want to invest in that kind of long-term story, then um, you need to move quickly, I would say. Don't get me wrong. There are certain parts of multifamily and apartment um, that I think will run into some problems. Um, yeah, there was quite a lot of very cheap bridge financing in the multi-sector where people were, you know, in the boom years of 24% rental growth, People were buying grade C assets, 
you know, with with very low debt, and they were looking to refurbish uh, and reposition those as B or B plus or, or or A grade space. You know, given the general weakness and the level of um, of interest rates, I think some of those could end up defaulting. So if you're a student of these matters, you, you know, you might, there might be assets to be picked up or recapitalized in that segment of the market. James is going to start salivating. Now. Oh, that, I, that's I his, was. I was getting, uh, that's his, his wheelhouse. <laughs> I was getting itchy fingers all of a sudden. I'm like, yes, here we go. Yeah. And, and I think Richard nailed it. It's like, Everyone was buying these deals on very tight performas, and then their debt adjusted on them in midstream. And you're in construction; your construction costs are higher, your permit times are longer, and then all of a sudden your cost of money's gone up. And it's definitely it's it's got some trouble in that sector. It's like the, the stuff that's stabilized is still moving as well, but the stuff that's in mid stabilization that's where uh, we are seeing opportunities, and that's that's definitely where we're looking. That's right, and and again over. Over a long career, you know, people who've made very good buying decisions have, have bought, uh, bought from troubled developers or troubled construction companies. Um, you know, we've seen this one before. Well, I, I, I hope no one loses their shirt. I'm not, I'm not rooting for that at all, but I think it is helpful to recognize that this is happening and that there are likely going to be distressed assets that need to be repositioned by someone else other than the current owner. Yeah. I mean, don't get, you know, uh, the banking sector at the moment is writing off a lot of debt that's below water. So there is an economic cost to this, um, but it's just not got out of control at the moment. And thankfully, it hasn't quite hit the consumer sector, the, the housing market yet, because um, that then, you know, impacts ordinary people. And, and that's not very pleasant at all. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. This has been incredibly insightful. I do want to share with our audience that you have also, uh, you and your team have authored an incredible economic report called the Mid-Year Global Real Estate Market Outlook for 2023. Um, it's a fascinating read, I, and there's a great video that goes along with it as well. Richard, can you just tell us briefly about this and where our audience can find it if they want to learn more? Yes, it will be on the CBRE website, cbre.com. Uh, go to Research and Insights uh, and click through on that. It might take two or three clicks, but it, it is there. I have my research experts from around the world. And, uh, uh, we, you know, we try to, to be neutral and balanced and data-driven. And, you know, we just give a broad overview of, of real estate markets in the United States and around the, around the world. Um, I, actually, I, I participated in it and I learned from it as well, actually. <laughs> That's the best kind of research project, right? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Richard, thanks again for joining us. That's my absolute pleasure. So, James, Richard has told us that he thinks asset values are going down, which obviously is not great for anyone who holds real estate, but also that there might be some opportunities, which I know you are particularly interested in taking advantage of. So how does this type of forecast or prediction make you feel about your business? Well, I like he gave me verification that you should be buying when other people don't want to buy, essentially. There were so many key little things, you know, when he was talking about how industrial, the rents are going up, but the pricing's going down, 
right? Or um, so there is some opportunity in those sectors of going through and just looking for those opportunities right now because you hear it all the time that people are like, ah, oh, you can't buy anything, you can't buy anything. But that stat alone that you were talking about industrial rents are going up, but the pricing's going down. That is where you want to go look at. So I, I'm getting more and more excited. Um, for the next 12 months. And it's going to be a matter of being patient and finding the right opportunity. You mentioned on the show that cap rates where they are now, you said Seattle, what are they like five and a half? Yeah, it's like, I would say five and a quarter to five and a half in there somewhere. But given where interest rates are, that's still usually that's negative leverage. You know, that's not something that's typically attractive to investors given where debt costs are. At what point would cap rates have to rise for you to feel really excited about the potential of the deals you could buy? Well, that's, you can always get a good cap rate if you buy value add. Mm -hmm. That's where you'll get, uh, or you can increase it. But I mean, in theory, I, I don't really like to buy below cap rate. I would want to be in that six and a half. If it's kind of stabilized with little upside, I want to be around a six and a half mm -hmm. right now. And just so everyone understands, like, Cap rates are a measure of market sentiment. And as James is indicating, it ebbs and flows based on cost of debt, how much demand, perceived risk. Um, and generally speaking, cap rates are lower for stabilized assets. And when cap rates are lower, that means that they trade at a higher cost. When cap rates are higher, they are cheaper. And usually you can get a higher cap rate as a buyer if you're buying, as James is saying, uh, a fixer up or something that needs value add. But sorry, James, go ahead. Yeah, it, it, I think that's what we're seeing right now. Like we're, a lot of the transactions we're seeing to in this last six months, it's a lot of 1031 ex like movement of money, mm -hmm. but not a lot of new buyers walking in for that general five and a half cap. If they have a purpose to go buy, they will. Other than that, everyone's chasing that value add where you got to put, you got to roll up your sleeves, get to work. But there is some really good buys right now. I know our IRRs have increased quite a bit over the last nine months to where we're now hitting 17, 18%. And so those are all good things. That's a very good thing. Well, we'll just have to keep an eye on things and see how it goes. But I, I, I generally agree with Richard's assessment. Cap rates are up and I do think they're going to continue to climb while my guess is that rents, at least in multifamily, which is the sector I understand the best, are probably going to slow down. You know, they, they might keep above zero and, and grow. But I think these insane rent growth rates that we saw in multifamily are, are over uh, for the time being. And so that combined with cap rates will increasing will bring down multifamily values even further past where they are today, which might present some interesting opportunities. So we'll have to keep an eye on this one. James, thanks so much for being here. We always appreciate it. And for everyone listening, it we appreciate you. If you like this episode, please don't forget to leave us a review on either Spotify or Apple or on YouTube if you're watching it there. Thanks again. And we'll see you for the next episode of On The Market. On The Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Research by Pooja Jindal. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On The Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies.
Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.